0: Welcome to the Citizens Youth Sermon Podcast. We are a ministry of Northwest Gospel Church and a community of students who are learning to live for Jesus. We meet every Wednesday at 7 p.m. To find out more, visit nwgospel.com slash citizens. Hey, buddy. How are we doing tonight? Doing good? Cool, cool. Okay, so how many guys said Barbie? Let me see the hands. Okay, not too many Barbie people. How about Oppenheimer? Okay, a lot more Oppenheimer people. Okay, so I am an Oppenheimer guy myself, and the history behind it really interests me. So I was looking through, reading through some World War II stories the other day, and I came across this one of this ship in England. It's traveling down the English Channel, which is a huge river in England. And it's carrying supplies. It's just a regular day. Everybody's chilling, chatting it up, you know, just doing their job. And then off to the distance, some people spy this thing heading towards them in the water. And they don't know what it is. But the closer and closer it gets, it's revealed that it's actually a torpedo shot from a German submarine. And so as it gets closer, you know, they're putting it full throttle, trying to get out of the way of this thing. But once it gets close enough, they realize that they can't get out of the way of it, that they're gonna get hit, and that the boat's gonna go down. And so everybody starts panicking, everybody starts freaking out. And then right before this torpedo hits the boat, the torpedo flips around. It does a full 180, like flips up in the water, shoots back, and actually ends up hitting the German submarine that shot the torpedo in the first place. And so probably like you guys, I didn't really believe it when I first heard it, but apparently these are called boomerang torpedoes. And there's like a gyroscope inside of them. And when they get shot out, if this gyroscope is messed up, the torpedo will actually flip around and come back towards the thing that shot it. And so I bring this up tonight because we are going to be reading a psalm that is about something very scary that's happening. The psalmist is going through something very, very terrifying. But then in the end, he is delivered from it and rejoices because of that. And so tonight, we're going to be in Psalm 22. It's a little bit of a long one. It's 31 verses, but we're going to go through all of it right now. So it begins to the choirmaster according to the Doe of the Dawn, a Psalm of David. So David is writing the psalm. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy and throned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my do- to my jaws." Sorry. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who cannot keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. All right. So here, for any of you guys who zoned out, uh, so David is writing about something that he's going through right now. He's going through something super hard, something super trying. He feels distance from God. He feels like God is not there listening to him. And then towards the end, he starts praising God for delivering him from the situation. And so the interesting thing about this passage is if you look at some of the phrases, it's very obviously describing a execution. Phrases such as, you lay me in the dust of death, deliver my soul from the sword. David is afraid of dying right now. He's facing the sword. and. But the thing that makes this psalm especially interesting is that this is a group participating in this execution. Phrases uh, like, groups of bulls surround me, groups of evildoers surround me. There's groups of people mocking him, groups of people uh, telling him to call out to his God. So this isn't just one person trying to kill David. This isn't Saul, right? This is something else entirely. But if we look at Jewish history, if we look at the history back then, we do not see a certain ritual that would account for this taking place, right? We, we never see David actually get executed by a group of people, and that is what this psalm describes. So if this didn't happen to David, then why is he writing it, right? What is he talking about in here? And an important step to figuring this out is remembering that David is actually a prophet. In Acts 2, Peter Uh, tells us that David is actually an Old Testament prophet. And I did not know this before reading this book, but it actually makes a lot of sense when you read some other Psalms. And so if David is a prophet and he's not writing about himself, then he's probably writing about somebody that's yet to come. That's somebody that is coming along, right? And so who could this be about? Well, let's go to the passage to try and find this out. So the first verse, it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And even if you've only ever showed up to a couple Easter Sunday services or you're new to the church, this should sound familiar to you. In Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, it says, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus quotes this psalm up on the cross. And more things that we see throughout the passage. In verse 16, it says in the last part, they have pierced my hands and feet. And if you remember to the crucifixion, Jesus has nails through his hands and his feet. Another parallel that we see here in verse 18, it says, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. In Matthew 27, 35 again, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then one more here, verse seven through eight, it says, all who see me mock me they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And if you go to Matthew 27, 43, it's describing the crowds outside of the crucifixion talking to Jesus, and they're saying, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And so these are a few of the very obvious connections to Christ in this passage, And I've seen pastors do whole sermons just based off of how many connections there are to Christ in this one chapter of Psalms. And Psalms actually is the most quoted Old Testament book in the Gospels. And Psalm 22 is the most quoted Psalm in the Gospels. And so it's apparent that whether David knows it or not, he is not only describing a trial that he is going through, but he's actually describing the suffering that one of his descendants is going to have, which is the greater David or Jesus Christ, right? And so I want us to look back through this passage again and read through it because when you look through it, looking through the lens of Jesus suffering on the cross, we actually get a very vivid picture of what Jesus had to go through while he was up on the cross. So if we look at verses one and two, Jesus is feeling distant from God. He is crying out to God, and he is not hearing a response back. Right? It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. So Jesus here, he's saying, I'm crying out to you right now. I cry out in the morning, I cry out in the evening, and I'm not getting anything back from you. And you got to remember that both Jesus and David Jesus is literally the son of God, and David is quoted as being a man after God's own heart, right? So they all have a very intimate relationship with God. They all, they, they, they both know God very well and have this relationship with God that some of us dream of having, right? And so for them to experience something where God is not immediately responding, where God does not feel close, where God does not feel right next to them, it would be very disorientating. It's like, imagine you're walking out one day, you're with your dad, you go out, you grab some ice cream, right? And all of a sudden, you guys are in like an alley, two dudes jump out, they start beating the crap out of you, and your dad's just sitting there like eating his ice cream. And he's like, like, and, and you're looking up to him, you're like, dad, help me, help me. And he just what? Like, I can't hear you. And so like, as funny as that is, God, that, that is what happening with David and Jesus right here is they are crying out to him. They are saying, Lord, help me. And he is not responding. And so this is part of the emotional um, anguish that Jesus had to go through on the cross that we don't really think about too much. And uh, furthermore, with the emotional side of this, if we look at verses six through eight, it says, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He, tr- oh, wait. Yeah. he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And so right here, you're seeing the Son of God, the Lord of glory, as we'll hear in a second, is feeling not even like subhuman, he's feeling like the lowliest of animals even. He, he said, I don't feel like a man. I feel like a worm right now, right? And so Charles Spurgeon, he puts this in a very good way. He says, this verse is a miracle in language. How could the Lord of glory be brought to such a basement as to not only be lower than the angels, but even lower than men? What a contrast between I am and I am a worm, right? Because we know God as the great I am, right? I am who I say I am. All powerful, all knowing, all everything. And right now we are seeing him as a man on this earth feeling not even like a man, feeling less than, feeling like a worm. And you can see just how much of an emotional anguish this must be for Jesus to go from feeling like the son of God to going to feeling like a worm. And not only is he going through that struggle, but people are also making fun of him, right? He's going through public humiliation, public embarrassment. And this is something that we all fear, right? Being publicly embarrassed is one of the worst things that people have to go through sometimes. I remember one time I was in like the fifth grade, fifth or sixth grade. I'm out on the playground. I got a fat crush on this girl. We're talking. We're chatting it up. I'm, I'm trying to you know spit as much game as a fifth grader can spit. And so. I, we go out to like the soccer field because my friend had been telling me he'd been teaching me like little goalie tips you know be better at soccer and she loves soccer so i was like she's gonna eat this up she's gonna think i'm so cool and so we go out there you know she's kicking it at me i'm blocking a few of them i'm letting her have a few you know make her feel good and stuff everything's going great and then she kicks one out to the side i lunge for it like this and the whole crotch my pants rips wide open and I'm not, talking like, <laughs> I'm not talking like a little hole. I'm talking like seam to seam. It just burst open. And there was like no hiding it. It was rough. And so in that moment, you know, like the embarrassment that you feel trying to impress a girl and then going straight to like everybody's laughing at you is crazy. And all jokes aside with that, Jesus right now is feeling that but to a thousand percent, right? He is not only feeling physically hurt. Uh, emotionally hurt, but then he has people making fun of him, testing his faith, questioning who the God is that he believes in. Why is your God not coming to deliver you now? Why do you delight in him if he's not going to come and save you from this, right? And so he's having to go through that along with all these other things. And so that's more of the emotional side of it. But if you look further down into verses 12 through 18, we get into more of the physical aspect of what Jesus is going through on the cross, right? He says, many bulls encompass me, Strong bowls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths in me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a putscher, Excuse me, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So Jesus Christ right now, he's describing to us a bunch of different things, a bunch of different pictures of exactly what he's going through physically right now. He is saying all of my bones are out of joint, right? Some of us have broken bones, but imagine saying that it feels like you've broken all of your bones, that all of them are out of joint. He says, My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. I don't, I don't even know what that would feel like. Like, I don't know what, what my heart would be doing for me to cause it to, like, for, for it to cause me to describe it like that, but it must have been pretty intense, right? And then down in 15, it says, My strength is, like a, is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. So I didn't know before this what a potsherd was, right? I thought it was going to be something super fancy, something super crazy. It turns out it's literally just like a vase, it's just made out of clay. And so, but the reason why Jesus brings this up is because if you guys know anything about clay, the way that you turn it from a soft little ball of like wetness or whatever, you put it inside of a kiln and the kiln is super hot, right? And this kiln sucks all the moisture out of this clay and that's what causes it to become a hard vase, a hard brittle vase. And Jesus is literally saying, it feels like the same as if my mouth was that clay having all the moisture sucked out of it and my strength that's, that's how thirsty he is. And we see in um, John 19.29 that he actually drinks vinegar because of how thirsty he is. And for all of you guys who had to drink vinegar tonight, it's not great, right? It, it, it's not great. So, <laughs> yeah. But Jesus is literally so thirsty right now, so dehydrated, so weak, that he was, he was more than willing to drink vinegar instead of deal with the thirst that he had been dealing with, Right? And 19 through 20 kind of close this little passage out. He says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. And so here you see there's more exclamation points uh, right here. There's, it seems very sudden and abrupt. And it's like, what is going on right now? It seems like something is like coming towards him. And he's like, please come and save me. Like, I need you right now. Please, please, please. And it's, it seems like he's terrified. Like, if everything else wasn't enough, something is happening to him right now where he is absolutely petrified and he's calling out to God, if there's any time, now is the time. Like, please. And so, when we look through this whole passage, what we see is we see one man suffering, right? And that's the first point on your guys' little packet is one man suffering. So... We see Jesus up on that cross. His mouth is dry. His bones are out of joint. He's wondering where his father is. And what is his response in this scenario? Well, I'm sure you guys noticed that we skipped over a few parts in the first half. And it's because if the way that Jesus is talking to God right now, he is going through little waves of calling out to God, crying out to him, saying, please come rescue me. Please come save me. And then in, in between, he's saying, but I know you got me. I know you have me. I'm, I'm faithful to you. I know, I know that you have me in your hands, even though it feels like you are far away. In verse 3, immediately after saying, I don't hear you, like it feels like you are far away, he says, yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. And I think that that really shows who Jesus is, where he's going through something absolutely horrible. We see later how horrible it is. And he is still praising God in the middle of this, right? And let's look further in verses four and five. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. So Jesus is looking to this and he's saying, I know you have never failed our ancestors. I know you've never failed the nation of Israel, right? Every trial that they have ever come to, you have delivered them from it the Red Sea, right, when, when he parts uh, the sea for, the Egypt, or for Israel when they're running from the Egyptians, uh, when, he, when they get to cross the Jordan River, when he brings them back from Babylon. All these different trials Jesus is referencing, saying, I know that you have not put my fathers to shame for believing in you. And then he doubles down on this, but in a more personal way in, nine, uh, in verses nine through 10. He says, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. And so here he's not only showing that he has never not known what it feels like to know God, but he is also saying that God has remained faithful throughout his whole life, right? From the moment that he was born, God has been there for him. God God has been with him. And so he's saying, if you have been with me my whole life. Why would you not be with me now? And we see him say in verse 11, be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. So he's saying, like when he says, be not far from me, he's saying, you haven't been far from me ever before. So now, if there's any time like the present, now do not be far from me. And so when when, when we see Jesus doing these things, a great question to ask is always, uh, should we be doing these things, right? And the answer is yes. When when life gets hard, just like Jesus does, we can turn to God and we can turn to the Bible, right? The Bible talks about these hard things. They, it talks about these trials that Jesus is facing and that all these other people in the Bible are facing because it knows that each and every one of us is gonna face hard trials in our life, right? It doesn't, God isn't up there um, telling the people writing the Bible, Oh, hey, tell your story until you get up to the anxiety part, but that's too much. Tell your story until you get to the part where you deal with depression, oh, but that's because that's too much. When, when you're dealing with loss, when you're dealing with grief, when you're dealing with these health conditions, don't include that because that's too much for the word, right? No, he, he leaves these in here because he loves us and he cares for us and he loves us enough to give us his word to reference when we are going through these things, Right? And so whether you're showing up to a new school, you're feeling lonely, and you're asking God, when am I going to make friends? When am I going to fill some community? When is this going to pass from me? If you just lost a loved one, and you are wondering when that hole that they left you, when it's going to be filled, when it's not going to hurt so much, we need to turn to God we need to turn to the Bible because these are the things that God has given us. He has given us himself and he has given us this whole book to reference when we are going through these things. And so this is our response while we are in suffering, but I wanna look at the second half of this chapter because the second half of the chapter is gonna show us a little bit more about what to do after our suffering. So let's read through it right here. We're gonna start in verse 21. I wanna point out when, when we left right here in verse 20, Something terrible is about to happen to Jesus. He's he's kind of freaking out and he's calling out to God. And then in verse 21, there's a little bit of a change. He goes from, save me from the mouth of the lion. And then he says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So this is the verse where Jesus is delivered. This is where he goes from, save me, save me, save me. And then instantly switches right there and says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen, right? And so that's where this whole psalm flips into a psalm of praise. And he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And so I want to take a look at that verse right there, verse 24, because if you read that, it specifically says in the last part, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And that is a beautiful contrast between verse two, where Jesus is saying, I'm crying out and you're not responding. I'm crying out by day, yet I hear no response by night and I feel no rest, right? And right here, this is the answer to that. He is realizing the truth that no matter the circumstances, no matter how hard it is, no matter how rough it is for these people, that God does not despise the affliction of the afflicted, that he will come and he will rescue and he always hears you. And so let's go further down. We see, from, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. And so here we're gonna see the beautiful part about this passage is that it goes from this horrible suffering of one man to where Jesus is now including the whole world in this celebration and David as well because David is the one writing this, right? And so he says in 27, or sorry, 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And then also in 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who cannot keep himself alive. So it doesn't matter if you're down in the dumps, if you're the lowliest of lows, if you're the afflicted, or if you are prospering in this life right now, if you are walking stride and stride with God, if you are feeling his love, his presence, we are all invited to this feast, right? And so that is the second point in this is that, it is everyone's reward. So we had one man suffering and now we have everyone benefiting from this. And we know that this, this benefit from Jesus' suffering is that we all get to spend eternity in heaven with him if we accept that gift of salvation. And so when we look at this passage, we have to look and see what Jesus does immediately after suffering, right? Right? And what does he do? He praises God. Immediately afterwards, he comes out of this horrible time, this trial, and he doesn't go out and be like, oh, look at me, you know, I made it through. You know, it was whatever. I might have been like screaming in the middle of it, but it's whatever. He goes and he's like, praise to God. He says, Yeah, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And then he calls everyone in the whole world to go and praise God too. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. So this is like, this is not only Jesus praising, but he is calling all of us to praise. This is a super awesome thing that we can draw out of this passage is that we can't, call on God, we can't go to the Bible and ask him, beg him for this deliverance, for this thing that we need in the moment, and then afterwards not give him the credit, right? That's not fair. If, if we're out here in a hard time and God delivers us and then we turn around and then we act like we, like nothing happened, we act like we just got through it ourselves, how, how wrong is that? How, how messed up is that to do to God, right? And. It's, it's also amazing to see how God redeems this horrible thing, redeems his son's own death that he sent him to and redeems it into eternal life for all, right? Just remember that anything that you guys are going through right now, no matter how bad it is, you can't imagine what, the, what God is going to draw out of that, what God, how God is going to use that for good, right? He is going to take the thing that you are suffering with right now and use it for something great. And so if we take a look at this book as a whole, right, we see the one man suffering, we see everyone's reward, we look at how to respond in suffering, we look at how to respond after the suffering, but what is this whole book saying to us, right? And the whole book, the whole whole idea of this book is that God rescues the forsaken from death, right? God is not gonna leave you in a terrible situation. He's not gonna leave you down in the pits he will rescue you from the thing that is causing you to feel forsaked. And a very important thing to remember in this is that once we accept Christ's gift, we're never forsaken from him, right? Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. This is not only for the people who are living in Deuteronomy, like that, that time. This is not for only people living when Jesus was alive. This is a absolute truth. This is something that rings true still to this day, that he will not leave you or forsake you. And we can see this because he sends his one and only son, right? He, he sends his own son to come die for us. And so why would he have his own son killed to save us? And then in the middle of our trials, in the middle of when it really gets going tough for us, he just leaves us in the dust. He's like, oh, well, whatever. I guess sending my son wasn't enough. That doesn't make any sense, right? He is going to be with you guys. He is going to be there for you and he loves you. And I want you guys to see that we can have full confidence in God that he's gonna deliver us from these things, but it might not be in the moment that you want, right? It might not, it might not be right when the going gets tough. It might be after uh, it's been tough for a while. When you look at that torpedo, the, the story about the, the delivery ship. It would have been awesome if the torpedo reversed like the second it came out of the thing, right? But it literally traveled all the way up to the ship and then reverses right at the last moment. And so you can take this and know that God might, that, that you might suffer through something for a while, but God is never going to let that thing overtake you. God is never like gonna let you succumb to that thing. He is always going to deliver you when the time is right. And this is awesome because we can take comfort in this. We can take peace in this. But also remember that while we are facing trials, since God is with us, that it is going to benefit us, that we're going to come out as better people on the other side. James 1 says, um, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance have Let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And so we know that when we go through these trials, when we lean into God, when we look up to him, when we cry out to him, even when it feels like he isn't there, that in the end, he's going to not only deliver us from it, but we are going to come out on the other side, closer with him and as a more mature person, not lacking anything, right? And so as we look at this passage, it's just good to remember that when you're going through a hard time, we need to turn to the Bible, turn to God, look to him, look for the affirmations that he has to tell us, look for the comfort that he has for us in the Bible and for the guide to how we are supposed to handle that situation. And once we are through that trial, we need to praise him for it. We can't just take the gift and then not give credit to the person who gave us the gift, right? And then lastly is to know that he's never gonna fail in that deliverance, that he is always gonna be there for you that no matter what you're going through, no matter how hard it may seem, that you can always count on him being there for you. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for tonight. I pray that you would just help these kids take this message to heart, that they would just remember that you are always with them, that you never leave them nor forsake them, and that they can be confident knowing that you will deliver them from any trials that they face in their life, And I pray that you would just help them to remember just to take time out of their week, take time throughout their busy days, that any things that you have redeemed in their life, any um, trials that you have delivered them from, that they would just go and thank you for those things and just remember how great of a God you really are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.